Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Literacy Advocate. I'm your host, Timmy Bauer, and my guest today, I'm very excited to talk to. I am talking to Erica Garcia, who you probably know from her spicy uh, onslaught of great tweets that go insanely viral, um, and for good reason. Um, you always seem to have something interesting to say every day. Do you do you uh, tweet out anything in advance, or is that just like, this is what I'm thinking right now? Yeah, that is correct. This is what, I, <laughs> what I'm thinking right now. Great. I love it. Um, so you're an elementary instructional coordinator for K-5 in St. Louis, Missouri. You've been a teacher for 22 years. You taught elementary for the first seven, then middle, teaching English and social studies. Then you became a literacy coach. And this is your third year as an instructional coordinator. You have two masters in educational administration, and you're currently working on your doctorate in education. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. It's been a long time since we did our pre-interview. And uh, I've actually talked a lot about some of the different things that I've got here in my notes from when we talked last. Um, but just before I hit record, you said something that I was like, you know, I kind of just want to start there and see where it goes. And that is we were talking about Lucy Calkins for a second. And you said a lot of people put the workshop like in their heads, the workshop model and Lucy Culkins are synonymous and you believe that they're not synonymous. So um, take it away, Erica. What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, the workshop model has existed for a long time. And really, the workshop model is really just about getting having kids become readers and writers within the classroom. So you follow you know, a, a process for it. Um, you know, we'll go with writing, but you know, the idea of brainstorming and then, you know, producing drafts, revising, editing, you know, potentially publishing that cycle um, of writing happens for the majority of the workshop. And, and that is something that we've been doing forever. It's just that we um, didn't necessarily attribute it to any one person. And now that structure is now synonymous with Lucy, but workshop exists outside of Lucy and it always has. It's really just the idea of letting readers and writers have time to read and write and then working on tailoring that instruction through conferring. And so I say this because we can still have a workshop format and not necessarily utilize Lucy Calkins as our um, as our main curriculum. What I really think we should be doing is using kids and being responsive to those in our classrooms. And I think sometimes having a guidebook that walks us through step by step in so much detail kind of um, takes takes away a little bit of that personalizing to students. Yeah, this is something that I've said a few times on the podcast, which is it's crazy to me that we take folks that have devoted sometimes a decade or more of their life to studying education we put them in schools and give them extremely like almost like they're robots say this is what you do <laughs> which is crazy to me because that's not true in any other field but i also wonder so it's just like anything else you know you have a concept so let's take like growth mindset you know when when carol Dweck, when she originally came out with growth mindset um you know it was super interesting and people kind of went with it. And then, you know, it had iterations and iterations and iterations until it was simplified to simply like, well, I mean, if you just try hard enough, you'll be successful, which is not not necessarily what Carol Dweck meant. And I think that that's probably true for Lucy Calkins. Like, I, I think, you know, I'm not a hater of Lucy Calkins by any means, but I also, I, I think it's what 
what it has caused us to become or maybe what has happened as a result is less about kids and more about the program. And, you know, that could just be, you know, the way in which I've seen it implemented. But when I see the same read alouds or the same mini lessons happening, regardless of the students in the room, that's where I start to, you know, think a little bit about, hmm, you know, like, are we doing, are we teaching children or are we teaching this particular um, program? Yeah. What do you think the science of reading folks have to say about the idea of the workshop model? It's been around forever. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good. I don't right. know too much about what they would have to say to that. I, I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, it's not one or the other, it's both. And, and I think that that is something in which we've kind of missed about the workshop. So we, we go into this model of conferring, which is great if we are truly conferring, but are we explicitly teaching things like, you know, word study, phonics, you know, spelling, those types of things kind of got shoved aside for that bigger approach, that more big picture approach and, you know, thematic type of approach. And so I don't, I don't think that it's about the model. I think it's about what we've left out of the model. So when we talk about that idea of, okay, you know, readers off you go, um, you know, here is where our instruction is truly going to happen. I always think the mini lesson is really just going to be that blanket. I'm going to throw out information you know, to you, if it, if it grabs you great, if it doesn't fine, but the real instruction is going to happen in my next steps. My teacher moves are going to dictate, you know, which students I go to. And I, and I think sometimes we make a mistake. We start with the students who are our striving students. And then, you know, we live there and then we have students who are, you know, either like almost there and, or are totally there who've kind of been neglected of our, our attention. Yeah. So, you know, I think we have to shift the way we think about that. You know, how many students are in a typical classroom at your school? Um, eight, like around 18. So, yeah. So it's a big challenge. How much time is there for conferring with students? Um, for us, we have a, a typical, I think maybe an hour and a half to two hour literacy block. We have a very, we have a lengthy time, of course, that's, that's divided into reading and, and writing. But, you know, I will say that this is only my third year in my current district. And I have to say that um, this is, this is where I've seen it done well. Um, you know, where, where I've seen teachers really embrace the idea of not just conferring, but those, you know, small group instruction and the individualized instruction and having more of those components that aren't just, you know, the conferring piece, which is an important piece. However, it's not, it's not the only instruction that should be happening when you're giving kids time to read or write. I'm a huge fan of individualized instruction, probably because I was homeschooled. And so my entire educational experience was individualized <laughs> instruction. <laughs> you, I, I don't remember if I told you this story about my child when I told him I was voted funniest in my high school. And, and it was during the, you know, when the pandemic first started. And so they were considering themselves homeschooled. And I said, oh, <laughs> you know, your mom was voted funniest in her high school. And my kid said, oh, were you homeschooled too? Oh, what a burn. How old? How old's your kid? Um, he's 10. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a juicy one. I know. He's got my personality. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah. Uh, so there's something else that you said when we talked last. Um, I asked you. Uh, so one of the questions that I ask in the pre-interview, if you can remember all the way back then, I say, what's something that you think teachers are not doing enough of? that they should be doing. And you said 
um, they need to start believing kids when it comes to reading, particularly like they need to start believing kids when it comes to their independent reading. Right. You think that when we do things like reading logs, all we're doing is building compliance. So what do you mean by that? So I just feel like, you know, I'm a reader. I, I, I read all the time. I waste, I, I, I have about, you know, seven books going at a time. But if somebody forced me to stop and jot or journal everything in which I was writing, I would feel like a failure because I don't necessarily finish books, right? Yeah. But there are some people like my mother who also reads all the time and, you know, she has to jot down every single book and then, you know, rate them because that's just who she is. But, hmm. um, you know, we all have different ways of documenting our reading and or, you know, like um, kind of immersing ourselves in the experience of becoming a reader. What we're teaching kids when we say here, you need to write down what page you're on, or you need to write down um, a, you know, a like synopsis of what you read or whatever the case may be. What we're doing is we're, we're making reading about an assignment and we're not making reading about becoming passionate readers or reading what you love. It, 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 yeah. How effective. So I have a couple of questions off of this. So one of my questions is, um, first of all, I agree with you. I think we are. I think what we're doing is forcing compliance. My first question is just like, how effective do you think it is at that objective of getting compliance? I, I mean, I, I'm a parent. I, I lie. <laughs> so uh, I am very compliant to my kids' teachers when they ask me to sign, sign the document that they read because I Ooh. signed. You know, I, I, <laughs> well, I I'll tell that I'll say this when I was in high school and college, almost everything I read, quote unquote, I just spark noted. Right. Well, and and yes, I mean, at least your eyes were to text. I'll give you credit for that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> however, like what if it wasn't wasn't like that? What if reading was really about building curiosity and building building, um, you know, like a type of relevance to kids and and we made it about that you know curiosity piece why do you re read right now like I know I read mainly nonfiction, um and the reason I read nonfiction is because I want to become the best that I can for kids that's my yeah. motivation do you take so, notes when you read nonfiction? um sometimes it just depends on you know like what I what I'm reading it for um uh -huh. You know, uh, I'm not, I don't have a really good retention rate. So for me, if it's something in which I'm going to have to pull back up, then yes. But if it's just more of like, I'm trying to get an idea of an overall philosophy, then no. So like uh, a couple of thoughts that I have on this is like one, when it comes to the idea of assessing whether students are actually taking in the books that they're reading, there are so many other things that you can do besides a reading log. I mean, like, Oh my gosh, if you want to make reading really just feel like an assignment and nothing more, give students a reading log. There's so many other things that you could do. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I mean, I just feel like it's your it's an assignment. Now it's no longer pleasure reading. You know, you've now made it something in which they have to do because you told them to and not something that they were intrinsically motivated to do. So I some would I, argue that it is the job of education to do some of that. What do you think about that? I think it's our job as educators to make kids curious and have them want to learn. So that, I mean, that's my philosophy is that when I, kids walk away from my room, I, it's not so much about them being a reader. I want them to be curious. I want them to discover. I want them to wonder. And, you know, the natural, you know, consequence to those things is actually becoming, you know, somebody who is a taker in of information. 
but um, you know, like, or, you know, somebody who is utilizing literacy in some form or fashion. So I think it's more about how do we build intrinsic motivation in students than it really is about how do we, you know, like build compliance around reading or, you know, I don't, I just, I think we need to really think about kids and the ways in which they are going to be experienced in the world and give them those tools that are going to help them, you know, want to do these things. Yeah. Are you, there's these two competing philosophies on the topic that we're talking about. And maybe you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but as far as I can see it, there's the philosophy of we need students to have come out of education, having gotten like having gotten the knowledge that education is supposed to equip them with. So we need students to have shared knowledge. We need that. that, And that means that there are particular things that even if it's just out of compliance, we get them to learn. So there's that philosophy. Um, And I think that philosophy has merit, Um, but it's in direct competition with the, I feel like it's often in direct competition with the philosophy that you're saying, which is, we need to build curiosity and turn people into lifelong learners. So, and I say to that, like, you know, so why do we have to have the knowledge that people say we have to have as a result of standardized tests or as a result of, you know, funneling into the same middle school or high school, like standards are arbitrary and they're made up, you know, we, we make them up. We don't make them up. Textbook companies, testing companies, they're the people who are the heirs of the knowledge, but what we, but, you know, the reality of it is, is that, you know, I, I know that I had to study Hammurabi's code. Could I tell you what it is right now? Probably not. Can I Google it? Yes. But that's not something that I'm necessarily, you know, into right this second. Um, you know, so like, how, how does that help me? Yeah. Um, you know, like- Similarly, I needed to study communism um, and, uh, you know, free market uh, and that meant there was a lot of reading that I had to do on those subjects. Um, I, I see the merit of like, you want somebody coming out of the education system knowledgeable about these things. Right. I, like I see the, the rationale there. And sometimes, I mean, you tell me, you tell me if you disagree, because at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily advocating for this as I am just going, I see that this is the competing idea. And I know that this idea has merit, or at least this idea really seems to have merit, even though my heart wants to agree with everything that you're saying. Right. Um, and it's the idea that sometimes the only way like sometimes at the end of the day, if a student out of their curiosity is not going to learn this thing, then all you have is compliance. But that's because of the way in which we school is like, you know, like if we rethought school a little bit um, and we thought about what we really want people or kids, our kids to walk away with as a result of, you know, like what we created here, I don't think that you would say, oh my goodness, I have to have somebody that, you know, knows the date to every, you know, civil war battle. You know, what do you want them to know? You want them to know, like, you know, you want them to know about, you know, the impact that enslavement has yeah. still on our, you know, society. That That's the bigger theme there. So For the record, I agree with you. I think when, particularly this topic, when it comes to history, dates are helpful to like be able to attach uh, moments in history too. But the thing, but we can all look up dates. What we right. need to understand is the impact of history. Like what happened and what was its impact? 
So, and I don't think that that's met through a content skill. And I think part of what we do in school is we put content into silos. So, you know, like we have math or we have reading or we have social studies or we have yep. science. But then in yep. the real world, like I don't <clears throat> sit here and wake up and say, oh my goodness, I'm going to math today. You know, like, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like is, you know, I'm going to, you know, get up and I have to be here at this particular time, you know, like, so, and then I have to be here by that time. So, you know, really math is, you know, something that's embedded into what I do. And then, you know, when I get there, I'm going to read the directions about what I'm supposed to be, you know, like doing as far as, you know, like, should I walk in or do I wait in my car? You know, like the, yeah. those are the ways in which we experience, you know, like literacy and math is just the way in which we approach different topics and different things within our lives. So why do we silo it? Why do we put these things in silos? And how, how do we get how do we get education out of silo mode? Well, I think there are some good steps in the right, I mean, in the right direction, if you will. I think some of the universities, as I see them kind of dropping ACT and SAT scores as requisites, I think that that is really helpful because I think that is one thing that binds us to certain learning. Um, Interesting. yeah, but I all I mean, and that that scaffolds down. I think standardized testing is, you know, I know it's the metric that we have right now for accountability, but like, what are we really holding accountable to at this point? Um, and then I just think part of it is focusing on process-based standards as opposed to actual content standards. Like wh- what I said, like, what do we want kids to walk away with? Well, we want them to be empathetic. We want them to have, you know, like cultural competence. We want them to have these things. So how do we create experiences in which build those things and don't just build knowledge? Hmm. Knowledge is important, but it's, it's not as it's on it on its own. It's, you know, it, it does nothing. It's really, you know, the way in which we know how to apply that knowledge at the right time, at the right place, that it matters. Yeah. Application. It's like, it's the com- the competition of what, what's more important, the ability to apply knowledge or whether or not you have the knowledge. And sometimes that's, that's a competing, um, that's competing for our focus. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And I, you know, and I think, you know, there's there's most certainly a balance, but I think also there's a lot of things that contribute to knowledge. It's not just, you know, dates, it's, you know, experiences or um, yes. you know, it's, I mean, I agree. It's shocking to me how how hard it is for the education system to recognize the massive shift that took place when everybody in our country got access to Google. Like, you know, like in, in my, in my world, uh, my professional world, uh, working in, in, at a, at a media company as a writer, um, it is not important that I, that it's not important. The facts that I know, it's important that I know like how to get the facts that I like for me to be able to talk about something and to know what I need to look up to get the, the facts right on that thing. Like that is what's important. That's application of this tool that it seems feels to me like the education system at large is not recognizing, like, it's almost like we all have this access. It's like, we were all tapped into a library that we have all have instant access to. So it's not that important that we get kids to memorize stuff. Right. No, and I think that's true. And I think you're, you asked a really good question is how do we get there? I mean, I think we start with the end in mind. I really do. I think we start by saying like, who not, not let's just like, what do we want students to know, but who do we want students to be as a result of our instruction? 
you know, like when I say, you know, we want them to be curious, we want them to be, you know, empowered. And those are the things yes. in which we need to competent. Be. Yeah. Um, uh, able to wield, sorry, my AirPods just died. Uh, <laughs> um, we want them to be, like, I'm done. I'm done with you. <laughs> sorry. Say it again. I said, I thought you were telling me, Hey, I'm done with you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. We want them to be competent and powerful and, uh, and knowledgeable about the things that have happened in our, in our history and what the implications of those are and moving forward, what needs, what the work that needs to be done. Right. I mean, and what would you add to that list? That's just what came to my mind in this moment. Um, I mean, I think for sure, like, you know, equity literacy is huge. I think that's really incredibly important. I think, um, you know, empathy is important. I believe that, you know, um, curiosity is important. Uh, competence, you know, those, those, those things, cultural competence, you know, which ties into that equity literacy piece. So I think all of those things are, are definitely, I'm sure, definitely important there. I'm sure there are more, I think, efficacy, we know that that's a huge thing, the ability to like, you know, really believe in our, ourselves. That's something huge. And we don't necessarily intentionally teach that enough, but we know it's I agree. So, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, Erica, this has been a really fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time. How can <laughs> listeners connect with you? Oh, um, I at flying monkey 13 on Twitter. So that's, that's <gasps> probably the best way to get a hold of me. Why, why is it flying monkey 13? Oh gosh. Um, so I love the wizard of Oz. Um, I've always been very active in theater. And so, um, I love the wizard of Oz. So it, it is that I did find out later that flying monkey is actually, um, it's a it's part of a narcissist network um so wow. I thought changing it but at this point it's like everyone knows me as flying monkey 13 so i i love the wish of us that's <laughs> and i think the flying monkeys because they were so um such a big part of wicked and and the whole storyline behind wicked yeah it's always stuck you know stuck out to me so i that's why but yeah it's i love it I do get people who email me and they're like, are you, you know, like, are, are you part of the, you know, narcissistic abuse network? And I, I, I just, I feel bad. I'm like, I just love the wizard of Oz. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> um, well, uh, shout out to the narcissistic abuse network. Um, and uh, everybody should go follow you at flying monkey 13. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much.